Today we're going to discuss media in the time of a pandemic. Obviously, a pandemic uh, is not a event that can be foreseen, at least not to the scale as the COVID-19 crisis has been. It is truly a once-in-a-century event. But even in that case, it has seemed like the media has been playing catch-up the whole time. When President Trump uh, announced a in effect, travel ban with China in late January, the media did not seem to take the coronavirus as seriously as its measure. In fact, BuzzFeed published an article just four days later on January 29th saying, don't worry about the coronavirus, worry about the flu. Just a month later, the positions had flipped and it was President Trump being assailed by the press for not taking coronavirus seriously enough. What happened in the interim? Why was it that the media was seemingly behind the curve on catching up with what was really going on in the world regarding this pandemic? We're going to be joined by Hugh Naylor to discuss that and more. So let's get right into it. Hi, Hugh, and welcome to Geopolitico. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so for those of you that don't know, Hugh Naylor, uh, in addition to being a, a good friend, uh, is based normally in Los Angeles. Uh, he's a strategic communications consultant, uh, co-leads Inside Revolution, and is a former Middle East correspondent for the Washington Post, the National, and uh, has worked across uh, you know the media sector. Uh, and he's been following very much uh, what's been happening uh, in the news as all of us have, but also the angle of how the media has been covering it. So thanks again uh, for having Hugh, me. Yeah, no, definitely. So Hugh, uh, where are you right now? So right now I'm in Southern Oregon, uh, staying with my parents and working out of their house. Um, they actually got sick uh, in February uh, and I suspect they probably had COVID-19. So I came up to kind of keep an eye on them and, and then I got sick myself, but uh, uh, it's, we're still unclear whether or not we had it, but everything's okay now, so it's good. So when you went up, did you suspect you had coronavirus or you felt maybe you got it, you know, while you've been staying with your parents or how did that unfold? I strongly suspect I got it from my parents, mm-hmm. but it's certainly possible that I contracted something in Los Angeles, given that it's a big city with deep connections around the world. What spurred you to leave Los Angeles? I mean, it's a pretty spread out city in some parts. Uh, it's, you know, got good infrastructure. It's America's second largest city. Why did you leave L.A.? Uh, yeah, interesting question. At the time, it was primarily rooted uh, in just keeping an eye on my parents. They had gotten so ill, uh, more ill than I had uh, ever seen or heard, that I felt an urgent need to, to, to keep an eye on them. Uh, but also because at the time it seemed at unclear whether or not we would actually have lockdowns in the United States. I anticipated that we would have really severe lockdowns like Italy, possibly in major cities, including Los Angeles. So I figured that 
it would be good to get out of Los Angeles before anything like that happened. It, it didn't transpire like that. I could have left after, uh, and even until now. Um, but I wasn't certain. Mm. Uh, and so I, uh, made the trip anyway. When, when was that you? Uh, like in early March. So I guess the big lockdowns hadn't happened, but I was assuming that apart from China, but I was assuming that they would, they would probably happen here. So you were tracking this early on. I remember, I mean, really even in January, I think you were on to what was happening with coronavirus. What was your feeling then? And, and did you feel a little bit like you were, you know, uh, howling in the wind? Uh, you and I both, I remember, were discussing it back in January over Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, I remember reading how cases had spread to Europe, to Washington State, and even, I believe, in somewhere in California, mm. and thinking that, you know, the r not and the, you know, estimated you know, mortality rate of this thing made it seem to be very, very alarming. And I remember thinking and reading reports from, I think, the Times and Bloomberg in mid-January and thinking, why hasn't the the World Health Organization declared, you know, a global emergency? Why have they not started warning about the threat of a larger pandemic? And a few people uh, on Twitter were discussing it, but I think most people weren't. And I was surprised by that, to be honest. Where... Where in the media did you see it being discussed early on? Did you see it anywhere or was it? I think think there were uh, strong suggestions uh, in publications like the Journal and the Times, you know, organizations that have uh, strong health and public health reporting, teams dedicated to this issue. And I remember reading those publications and thinking that this was pretty serious, but others seemed to gloss over it as, you know, just the flu. Why do you think that it's just the flu narrative, you know, took hold? It was interesting, you know, it, it, it took hold on the left almost initially or the centrist part of uh, the media in America. And then it, it seemed to also take hold a little bit on the right. But there was just a lot of it's just the flu and it became quite a dominant uh, perspective or approach in responding to this w- why do you think that was yeah that's a good question interestingly uh zero hedge and sort of the right-wing media guys were onto this really early hmm. uh and they were warning about pandemic you know sooner than a lot of the other right-leaning publications and blogs etc so they interestingly they were on it not that i'm like an avid reader but i saw on twitter hmm. they were tweeting about it but yeah, in generally, I think, you know, you have to give some, to some extent, a benefit of the doubt. This is sort of a once in a hundred year sort of pandemic event, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I think most people have no experience, at least in the United States and Europe, with something of this scale. So I think people, by default, are prone to thinking that everything will be okay. Uh, and obviously, that's not the case. But We've had it easy for a long time. So I think there's that. Uh, but then I think there are other issues you know, related to uh, these big disruptions that have negatively impacted the media industry, particularly over the last two decades, mm-hmm. where you obviously have 
not only newspapers going under because of disrupted ad revenue models, but, you know, teams of reporters who are focused on specific beats, you know, the courts or police or public health, Mm. you know, these big teams can no longer be financed. And, you know, in the past, newspapers would field beat reporters on these teams who would focus solely on that beat. Uh, and they became experts. You know, they'd spent three or four years reporting on public health issues. Uh, but I think you see now for a lot of news organizations, newspapers, television, etc., the staff that's available to become, you know, to focus exclusively on particular issues like this are not there anymore, apart from, say, the New York Times, which has done a wonderful job covering the pandemic. So you, you were right. based where in the Middle East when you were a correspondent? Uh, the middle. Uh, I was in Beirut, all over mm-hmm. Jerusalem, uh, Syria for a while. I was in Damascus, um, mm-hmm. uh, along with Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And it was during some pretty dicey times, right? I mean, there was a lot of upheaval happening in the region when you were out here. Uh, yeah, um, you know, I got my start in journalism. Uh, during the 2006 Lebanon War, uh, but then obviously the Arab Spring, I was in Tahrir for the revolution. Actually, stood in Tahrir when Mubarak was ousted. Uh, I was, you know, in Aleppo right after the the rebels had taken the city. Two wars in Gaza, and then you know Iraq for the ISIS assaults. So, so that hollowing out that you were speaking of, of kind of these, you know, more uh, dedicated staff to be able to, you know respond to and get on stories and cover things in depth you kind of saw that happening in real time that hollowing out when you were in some of these kind of organizations i did yeah i think the the response to keep the changing media environment uh and the fast-paced media environment that's very web-based now a lot of organizations including some that i worked with uh focus their resources more on you know hot take blogging and quick hit pieces that could be cranked out based on viral information on the internet, right? Sort of the recycling of news uh, based on secondhand or, or, or third person sort of discussion or observation. And um, there's that, plus the fact that, as I was saying uh, earlier, that when you had sort of a reduction in the size of these uh, beat reporters, the teams of beat reporters that had previously focused so exclusively and with expertise on particular issues, they were gutted. And now you have a turn to a situation where a lot of news organizations focus on generalists who blog about a variety of topics, but really have no specific concrete expertise. And when that happens, I think, you know, it's harder to, to, to blog uh, accurately and with expertise on something like a pandemic because you're not familiar with it. So what is, I mean, it's interesting when you talk about expertise, because that's, you know, the buzzword of the day is, is experts. Um, but it seems that, you know, by being verified as, as part of the media organization, there appears to be a cadre of, of journalists, you know, who are very vocal. Um, but do you ever fear that they end up in kind of a hive mentality? I mean, there seems to be a lot more journalists today than before, but it seems that there's a greater concentration of opinions. Yeah, I, I, 
I would agree with that. Um, and I think it's a result of a couple of factors, one of which is um, how news organizations, because they no longer exist like they used to in, around the United States, for example, in small and rural communities, you have a situation where the news is primarily consumed from media outlets that are located in big cities. Uh, and they field the journalists who do the bulk of the information purveying. And in turn, those journalists who all live around each other and interact with each other and are focused on issues in their cities often, um, they're also like, say, on Twitter, right, where they know each other, there's banter, but then when they exchange ideas on Twitter, it almost becomes somewhat self-reinforcing. So certain narratives become to dominate because it's seen as uh, a trend. And then if you break from that trend, you know, who knows, it might hurt your standing in the eyes of your community. I say that not to criticize these journalists, because I used to do that myself when I was a journalist in the Middle East. Um, uh, and I think, you know, these echo chambers become more pronounced because of this sort of web-based journalist environment that's concentrated in journalists in the cities. It's interesting you mentioned kind of the socializing aspect, and there's almost a social dimension to conform to a set of ideas once they're put out there. I mean, do you feel that a lot of the media or the journalists that we are seeing, they're frequenting the same parties in Brooklyn rooftops? I mean, is that is it that level? Or Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Hmm. I mean, I was... And at those same parties, uh, you could say, hey, you know, when I was a journalist. Uh, but yeah, they it's a it's a smaller community than than we realize. And that community, uh, as mentioned before, you know, they're concentrated in certain cities and they know each other. They interact with each other and they discuss things I'm offline. Um, they form ideas together. And that's not to criticize them, but it's just the sort of nature of the way uh, uh, journalists interact and work. So if we look at, you know, that community, obviously, as you said, you know, there's, it's not from a position uh, of malice or malintent, but there's certain kind of, you know, consequences of, of that type of, uh, you know, uh, aggregating. What percentage, though, of that community do you think, and I hate to put that term out there, are anti-Donald Trump? Oh, I mean... You know, I, I think a large percent. Um, it's fifty percent no, more, more than more 50? than that for for like the more than seventy five. Yeah, you know, I mean, for the big, you know, the big well known yeah. media outlets, more than more than ninety percent. I sh I would say it's up there, particularly among the younger generation uh, of journalists. So, um, so putting aside whether people should be or shouldn't be pro or anti Donald Trump. Uh, how do you think that affects the way they cover issues? Um, it, I think it depends on the news outlet and the level mm -hmm. of editorializing they're allowed to, to, to project. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think the, the journal or the times, they do a really good job of, of trying to, to focus on the facts. Um, mm -hmm. But then, you know, there are a lot of these digital native publications. I won't mention them by name. Mm -hmm. I read them and I find the you know I'm interested in, in what they write. But that said, uh, they're you know decidedly liberal and decidedly so in a way that you know 
their default uh, uh, opposed to Donald Trump. Um, Do you think, you know, I almost feel that if President Trump had said in middle February, everybody should stay home and in New York, we should have a complete lockdown, he would have been opposed for, you know, trying to impose some type of fascist rule on New York. You know, it's interesting. Am I, am I missing you that? Know, you know, you got to wonder. I, I don't. Obviously, I, I, it's a counterfactual and I, I, you know, I can only speculate. Mm. But, you know, at the time, there were publications, prominent ones, saying that, you know, don't worry, this is just the flu. Or, you know, mm. prominent journalists at these publications saying, don't worry, you know, 98% of people won't get that sick, right? And so at the right. time, I think people uh, in that community uh, might have seen the measures as far more draconian than, than mm. necessary. Uh, now, you're obviously consuming a lot of content and, and looking at media, independent media, you know, personalities. Who are five people you follow kind of in social media, maybe on Twitter, that give you a different perspective, maybe a more independent view on things? Um, I follow you. I enjoy your feed. Uh, and I say that with all sincerity. Uh, um, but also because you're a friend. Uh, Matt Stoller is really interesting. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he's, he's a progressive, but he is very critical of fellow progressives, uh, along with the right, mm. uh, in a way that makes me feel like, mm-hmm. you know, he's not beholden to anyone or anything. Of course, you got to follow Glenn Greenwald, whether or not you yeah. uh, agree or disagree with him. Uh, mm-hmm. Let me think of who else I follow. Oh, uh, you know, on the right, I, I, I like uh, I like just to see the views of uh, Cernovich. Is that how you pronounce his name? Mm-hmm. Um, he's mm-hmm. Mike yeah. Cernovich. And there's a guy. What's his name? Stokes. Um, I'd have to look him up. Uh, but he was. I'll, I'll give you his name. But he was really good mm. in terms of early on uh, gaming out accurately, fairly accurately, the scenarios that we would face uh, with this virus. Um, uh, His first name is John, I think. Um, Yeah. Mm. I mean, so I, I like those, those people a lot. um, And I find their feeds to be kind of uh, beyond the mainstream and, and, and pulling people in different directions, which I like. So, Right now, obviously, we are in mid-April. The global pandemic, it seems to be, you know, increasing now, you know, obviously could be winding down in some places to the extent that, that what that means, uh, peaking in others, plateauing in others. Um, but what do you think the media is missing right now? What do you think is not is, is not being covered as much? What's undercovered? Honestly, and, I, you know, I don't want to sound like a wild lefty here, but it's obviously how I feel. Uh, I think there's a, a deficiency in terms of the structural issues that have made the impact and the, the response to this virus in the United States mm. so negative and profoundly negative on, on our economy. You know, the structural mm. issues uh, that were in place before the virus struck, uh, you know, call it the gig economy, the hollowing out of worker protections and benefits, the concentration of power into a smaller and smaller number of corporations. I don't see that on, I watch TV news with my parents every night, you know, 
and I hmm. don't see those discussions. Um, I see it, you know, in the Times, uh, and to some extent in other publications, but it's not being, particularly in television news, discussed uh, to a level that that I think uh, needs to be part of the national debate. And I don't know why that is. It could be because some of these media outlets are owned by big corporations or billionaires or whatever, uh, or it could mm-hmm. be because the journalists who live in these big cities maybe aren't um, as exposed to the negative consequences of this concentration of power, as you would say right. somebody living in rural Nebraska who works at a Amazon distribution center or something, right? Definitely. All right. Well, before before I let you go, Hugh, uh, tell us what you're watching on Netflix. You're going to laugh when I say this, but I'm on a total reading binge and I'm reading Game of Thrones. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Well, well, I I, I want to know if that ends differently. So definitely uh, keep me posted on uh, on that. I definitely that will. Out. All right, Hugh. Well, you take care of yourself. Be safe. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll be seeing you soon. Obviously, it'll probably be a virtual uh, sighting initially, but hopefully we'll have a chance to meet in, in sometime in the not. I look forward to it. Thanks All a right. lot. Thanks, Hugh. Well, there is more than one perspective around the media and hopefully we'll be able to have further conversations also from around the world on how the media has been covering this uh, in other countries, including the Middle East, Africa, South Asia, and yes, even East Asia. Now, in the week ahead, we're going to be seeing a lot more developments, uh, definitely around the caseload in countries like the United States and around Europe. Uh, But we also need to pay close attention to what is happening in South Asia, in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, to see if there really is an uptick of the virus and its spread. That's going to be one thing to watch. A second thing to watch is the unfolding response around vaccine research and development. We're going to have a number of announcements this week Uh, It will be good to pay close attention to see who is stepping up to support that fight uh, and whether we are any closer to really what is important for any type of long-term resolution. And finally, uh, but also very importantly, as the lockdowns begin to take an economic toll of utter devastation on communities, uh, individuals, and of course countries at large, There's going to be a lot of domestic pressure, uh, particularly in Europe and North America, to start opening back up. And there's going to be careful calculation, not just on whether that happens, but how it happens. And what is the trade-off between liberty and safety that populations are willing to accept? That and more to be covered next week. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Geopolitico. Yeah.